ahead. Let's turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. I know this is... Uh, um, Job chapter 12 through 14 is a significant portion of Job at this point. As we have been preaching through Job, and I know some of these themes become kind of redundant to you, um, a good guy is suffering badly, right? That, that seems to be something that's, the, that's the, um, the backdrop of everything that has been happening so far. And one by one, his comforters, his friends, right, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have come not just to sit with him and offer a ministry of presence initially, but now to give their input as to what is wrong in Job's life. And we kind of progress, interestingly, interestingly enough, from Eliphaz, who kind of starts, you know, kindly, right? It's the best way we could put it. He, he addresses Job and says, hey, you, you wouldn't get angry, would you, if I had to say a few things? He suggests that maybe there's something in Job's life that he should examine because the thing that he wants to leave Job with is the understanding that God doesn't do stuff randomly. There's a reason why your children are killed, why all your you know, livestock are gone. Why your home is destroyed and why you have bro- broken out and you're physically at the doorsteps of death. There's a reason for it. And I'm encouraging you to consider what that reason is. Job responds to him. And it's interesting because Job responds to each of them in kind. Right? So you have Eliphaz, then you have Bildad, who is a little bit more direct and kind of using nature and all that's in nature, almost a scientist in terms of his observational skills. He says, you see that everything happens because something has caused something has caused something. There's a cause for what is happening here, Job, and I suspect that you are hiding something, and that is the reason why God has brought this pain upon you. So their argument becomes more clarified that there is, there is retribution to be paid. You have done something, so God has poured his, his wrath into your life. And then Job responds to him. And then most recently, we saw Zophar, probably the youngest of the three, and certainly the most angry, Right? He just comes at Job and lets him know that you're hiding some sin. He uses terminology for sin that suggests that you've probably been taking from the poor. You've probably been ripping people off. You're rich, but now I'm questioning how it is that you were rich in the first place. And this is probably the reason why God has taken all, all away. And you need to realize that the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. Their hope is to breathe their last gasp of air. And then God will crush them. His is not so kind. And his statement is simply, Job, you are a sinner. I don't know what your sin is. But it's clear that you are because I could see what God is doing to you. And you are, uh, you are an eyelash from your final destruction. So your only chance is to repent. Now Job responds in chapters 12 through 14. And that's what we look at now. And as Job responds, a couple of things I will say. First, the friends have a very tight system. right? We've been talking about that. They have a religious system that's very binary. They're convinced that everything is tit for tat. You do this, God gives you this. You do this, God gives you this. Are you wealthy? Well, you must be a good person. Are you poor? You must be a bad person. Is something good happening in your life? You must be doing good things. 
Is something really tragic happening in your life? Well, you probably deserve it. Retribution is the force that is God in the lives of humanity. That's their system. It's closed in. It's clearly defined. Its parameters are, are, are demarcated in dark border lines. They know exactly why this is happening to Job. That's the system. That's the system they've presented. And Job, his contention all along, and let me say this other thing about uh, this dialogue, because after chapter 14, this will end the first cycle of dialogues. Friend speaks, Job responds. Friend speaks, Job responds. Friend speaks, Job responds. The interesting thing is that all of them talk about God, and they talk about God in similar terms, that he is absolutely in control, that everything is, that is happening to Job is because God has ordained it. God is the one doing this to you, Job. Job will agree. God is the one doing this to me. And it's an interesting thing. They're not arguing whether or not right this stuff just happens. They know that God is God, and that nothing happens except that God has caused it to be. So they all agree on God's sovereignty. They all talk about God openly and accurately. And for the most part, their theology is spot on. They misapply their theology, Job's friends do. But their theology is correct. And as they speak, the interesting thing is that all of them speak about God. But in Job's response to each one of them, not only does he respond about God and about himself, the second part of his response is always to the Lord. They all speak about God. Job speaks also to God. Yeah, I don't know if we're supposed to take anything from that. I, I just find that interesting that Job, in the midst of his pain, seems to recognize that regardless of what he feels like he needs to say or do, he needs to eventually, and it always leads him, to come to the Lord to speak and lament, to complain, to argue, to make a case, but always not just amongst his friends and out loud, but directly to the Lord. So chapter 12 to 14 is a large portion of Scripture to take. And so we're going to take that in, in two pieces this week and next week. And, um, and let me say this about 12 to 14 as we enter this. Um, I, the only title I could come up with, though he slay me, right, um, I will hope in him. And that's because that's literally the words of Job um, in 13, 15. Um, he, he says, though God slay me, I will hope in him. And there's something, I think, about Job's attitude that is displayed or expressed in that phrase, right? Here he is, li- literally on the throes of death. He has, he has suffered every um, possible conceivable. I, I can't imagine what more you might do to Job, you know? Maybe tantalize him with an In-N-Out burger. Oh, you wish, you wish, right? I don't know. Like, like you could add in a little bit more of torment, I imagine, but you couldn't take more from a human life in this particular moment in Job's existence. He, he is a, a blink away from dying. He recognizes that. And in the midst of all of that, his faith still Exist. And I'm going to say that it shines. He doesn't feel good. He's not rejoicing. But it still is there. His faith life still manifests a heartbeat because he says, though he slay me, and I think his anticipation is God will kill him. It's a matter of days. He says, even though God is going to kill me, I will still hope in him. Now listen, we can go and take that into the theater of the absurd and think this is what faith looks like. You got to be crazy. You got to. No. 
Job is an excellent example of a man of faith who holds on to his innocence, right? And believes that this is not retribution. He, doesn't, he never says that he has sinned less. He's just saying he's innocent of anything that deserves this kind of wrath at this kind of moment. His, his whole point is that God is God. I agree with you. But this isn't because I have sinned in an egregious way. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I offer sacrifices. I worship the Lord. I'm a follower of Yahweh and I worship and love him. So why these things have happened, I don't have an explanation. And I'm dying to know. So this is Job. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at Job's assessment um, to his friends. Um, and, uh, and next week we'll be looking specifically at his hope. All right, so, oh yeah, that was work. So if you think about it this way, in terms of the, the, the three-point outline, we're going to be looking at uh, the system of the friends. And I think Job's argument in chapter 12 is going to be that your system is broken. It doesn't work. And then secondly, that your system is in fact dangerous. And that's the first half of chapter 13. He will assess the friends and their, their system of thought in terms of why bad things happen to individuals. Their system of retribution and divine justice. He's going he's gonna to unpack that for them. And he says more than he has said in any of his answers to them so far. And then he will lead right, to a, a cry for hoping in God, his Savior. But let me read to you, and it's a, it's a long reading, nevertheless we will do that. Um, chapter 12, all the way to 13, verse 19. Starting in Job chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you, who does not know such things as these. I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God, and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind." Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the age and understanding in length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counseled and uh, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. 
Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitly, deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when He searches you out? Or can you deceive Him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not His majesty terrify you and the dread of Him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Yet I will argue my ways to His face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be on your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your faith. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer or let me speak, and you reply to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come before you um, in recognizing the scriptures and recognizing the pain of Job. Father, as uh, men and women who receive far more blessing than we could ever deserve in this life, we find it, like Job's friends, uh, too frequent in us to quickly decide and judge the convictions, the weaknesses, and the failings of others. We find it too easy in us, Lord, um, to cast judgment, to, to stand in the seat of, uh, of uh, the divine judge, to, to determine that some have done something deserving of the difficulties of their moment. And perhaps there is some consequence to sin and give us wisdom if there is. But Father, like Job, help us to recognize that the innocent may also suffer. That there is the potential of pain even amongst those that are redeemed and loved. And Lord, sincerely, the, the greatest example of that has been in the person of our Savior who deserved none of all that He received in shame and contempt and pain and death. And yet He bore our shame so that we might be free from sin. And so, Lord, help us to see in Job a, a picture of that, an example of a theology that runs deeper than simply God does this or He does that based on the things that we do or don't. And let us agree with Job that there must be something more, that there must be a hope that goes beyond simply sin and death. We pray to thank you for our time in Scripture, for our worship this morning, for our fellowship, for all good things that we have from your hand because you are good. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The two things that we are constantly finding in conflict in the book of Job is that God is absolutely sovereign. And even in our reading, you saw Job affirming the very same things that his friends affirm. Yes, God is in control. 
But we find that as one pillar and then the other to be a little bit different, difficult to reconcile. God is good. Well, how good? So good that he has poured blessing upon blessing in Job's life. But now that is all gone. Has his goodness failed? Has his sovereignty failed? What is happening in the life of Job? And why has God placed this book of all books right here in its poetic beauty, right here in the Old Testament, for every saint of every generation to read? And it's so that we start realizing that when we start asking questions like, man, why is this happening to me? Our emphasis, underlined in bold, is me. All right? There's a little bit of emphasis on what is happening, but a lot of it is because there's an element to us that believes this should not be happening to me. Job's friends think that this is happening because Job deserves it. Some secret sin, some hidden unrighteousness that he has been toying with people. And as a result of that, God has finally paid him back in full. But Job knows better. He's not sinless. But he's done nothing that would demand this particular judgment. Retribution as a system in, in dis- defining God and his righteousness merely as ret- retribution does not work. And that's his assessment. right? He begins with the system that his friends are arguing. And he will t- tell them in chapter 12, 1 through 12, 25, your system just doesn't work. Take a look at verses 1 through 4 as Job responds. And, and understand this, he's not just responding to Zophar, he is responding to all of them. Right? And this is how the cycle, of, the first cycle of dialogues ends, with Job responding to all of their argument, one argument expressed three different ways or expanded on each time. And he begins in verses 1 through 4 by saying that your system misjudges the blameless. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, the wisdom and wisdom will die with you, but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. He says a couple things. One, he says, man, you guys, I know you think that you are the people and that when you die, wisdom will go with you because you possess all wisdom. He's being sarcastic and he's letting them know you think that you are the only individuals that understand anything. You are the elite, the only ones that God speaks truth to. He says, but I have understanding as well. I understand who God is. I'm not inferior to you. And he says, who doesn't know these things? What things? That God is a just God, that God is a sovereign God, that God is a good God, that all of the, who doesn't know these things? No one's arguing about who God is. They're arguing about what has happened to Job. And Job is saying, I get it. You're saying it. And it's true. But your arrogance in the way that you are misjudging the blameless is one of the reasons why your system, your system of God, casting retribution on sinners, it, it, it misjudges those that may be actually innocent. Verse 4, he says, I'm, I'm a joke. He says, I'm a laughingstock to my friends. And then listen, he says, I who called to God and answered, and he answered me. In other words, he would call on God and God would regularly answer him. He says, I am a just and blameless man, and now I'm a laughingstock. Now I'm a joke. Is, God, is Job a just and blameless man? 
The answer, if you've been reading along with us, is absolutely. Right? The author of Job, he begins by saying that Job is a righteous man. Then soon enough, God, when he addresses Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job a blameless and upright man? And he says that twice. Right? And so in the first two chapters, not only has the author affirmed Job's righteousness, but God himself has affirmed his blamelessness. So when Job says, I am a just and blameless man, and again, he's not claiming to be sinless. He'll talk about sin and the problem of sin later in chapter 14. Here, he's talking about simply, is this because I have done something particular? I'm innocent, blameless, of anything that deserves this exact justice. And I've become a joke. And you are the ones that are making that joke. All right? Your system, your self-righteousness, it's brought shame upon someone that is suffering tragically, but doesn't necessarily deserve it. They have misjudged the blameless. Secondly, verses 5 to 12, you are misidentifying retribution. You are misidentifying retribution. Look at verse 5. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. In other words, he's saying, you know, the thing with your system and the way that you think about things, you do bad, God crushes you. You know, you do good, God builds you up. Like oversimplifying the retribution and justice of God, what that leads you to is that you, when you are in ease and in comfort, when you do not suffer misfortune, it's easy for you to look at those that slip. It's easy for you to define, oh yeah, you know, why, why does that happen to that person? I don't know, but they must have done something, right? Why is that dude born blind? John 9. Well, is it his parents' sin or is it his sin? Really? I mean, is that the only two options? Well, in their system, it is. There is something you've done wrong, Job. And so it is difficult for the rich and the healthy to sympathize with those that are staggering. They, they find it difficult to sympathize with someone like Job. Because whatever is taking place, Job, you, you probably deserve it. Verse 6 says, The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hands. He's saying, listen, doesn't life and the world demonstrate to you that this system of retribution clearly is not consistent. In other words, Job is saying, has there ever been an occasion where we have found in the life of a robber, and the word for robber here is a violent robbing person. This isn't petty thief. This is a person that probably kills or injures someone so that he could steal their stuff. Is there a moment where you might find a violent criminal to be enjoying the fruit of his wicked labor and be at peace? And the answer is yes. He might be living well on some deserted island someplace or I don't know, in some mansion someplace, right? He might be living well even though he's taken advantage of, of individuals and has done violence to them. How about those who provoke God? Are there enemies of God who try to provoke him or deny him or make fun of Jesus who are doing pretty well and are secure in their jobs, in their workplace, in their station in life? I think we can identify some, right? Or... And he goes on to say, right? 
who, who bring their God in their hands, who worship their own gods. They got their gods of their own making, idol worshipers. Are there some that kind of get along in life and that are doing pretty good, they're at peace and they're secure even though they're the wicked? And all of us will say, even in our own limited experience, yeah, we see that often. And Job's friends are probably no different. And Job's point is, then your system is broke. God doesn't just cast retribution on someone right away. His, his pain, Job's pain, is not a clear indication that he has done something wicked. It's an indication that, that sometimes, for a period of time, people, get, people that are wicked do get away with stuff, and people that are good sometimes suffer indignities and pains. Well, doesn't all of creation testify to the same? Look at verse 7 and 8. But ask the beast and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. And I think what Job is saying is if you ask and look around all of creation, especially those parts of creation that's difficult for us to understand or to catch. He uses the term beast there. And, uh, and in the Hebrew he actually uses the term the behemoth. All right. Behemoth is a plural form of a feminine word um, for cattle. And later on in chapter 40, he means the behemoth. Like, as in this huge land monster that is so powerful that he is almost impossible to destroy. The, his point, I think, and perhaps here he means the behemoth, but I think he's trying to say, well, we'll see if like, you know, the, the I don't know, something like the, the sperm whale, something huge and difficult for you to maneuver. Can you just tame that dude? Or the birds of the heavens, meaning the birds that are in flight. Can you just catch them or tame them, right? The bushes of the earth, wherever they grow. And we're not talking about your garden. We're talking about how things just grow wild. You, do you have some control over that, right? Or, or uh, he says the fish of the sea and where they go. and where, Like, do we have control over all of the things in nature? And the answer is no. There's almost a randomness to it. Birds fly. Where is it going? I don't know. Right? Fish swim. Where do they swim to? I don't know. They just swim. I mean, things grow on hills. And then they get brown and then yellow and then they catch fire, right? And uh, Lord willing, it won't be that bad this year, right? But those things happen. And it, they, how do these things, they just happen. And I, I know we can explain some of these things. Fish migrate. Birds move to better climate. Right. And um, and I don't know, animals and birds kind of move seeds around, whatever. The point being that Job is saying, ask nature and it'll tell you there's there's almost a randomness to this world. And you're trying to redefine God as if he is explainable in the most domesticated terms. You are trying to tame a God that does as he pleases when he pleases. Right. So. On the one hand, the randomness of wicked getting away with their sin. On the other, animals do as they please because that's the way that the Lord has made them. Verse 9, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? God has given that kind of near randomness into this universe. Verse 10 through 12. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the age and understanding in length of days. This final statement is just saying that God is the Lord of all creation. But the way he lords creation is not so simple. 
It takes wisdom, aged and long-lived, to start to understand. It takes the cultivation of ears to hear like tongues can taste to know that God is indeed providentially over it all. Can I say something about this before we go to the third point under this? We use the term sovereign, right, when we talk about God. And we mean and we equate often the same word providence or a similar word providence, right? But here's the difference. Providence refers to God's power used in a way to guide everything in exactly the way he wants it to go. See, this is providence. So we'll say uh, it's just providential, right? Meaning that this is a, an act of God and everything is an act of God. And in God's providence, he orchestrates exactly where you ended up living, which job you took. And you think to yourself, well, but, you know, I had a lot of options and I chose this job because of X, Y, and Z. Yes, but God orchestrated that. His orchestration of every slightest small detail of existence, that's his providence. And we sometimes use the term sovereignty in that way. But technically speaking, sovereignty is not just his providence. He just does, right, everything that is done is something that God has caused to happen. That's true. That's providence. But by sovereignty, even though we use it uh, similarly to providence, technically, sovereignty means that God is free and has the power and right to do as he pleases. See, that's the way we use it when we talk about nations, right? When we say, hey, that nation is a sovereign state. What do we mean by that? It means that it has the freedom and the right to operate and to do things as it desires. So there's some countries in the world where women, if they go outside, have to wear a head covering, right? Cover their hair, cover their face. It's a law. And we might think, do that is weird. Stop that, right? They could say no. Why? Because they are a sovereign nation. And as their own people group, because they have right and freedom to do as they please as a people, they do what they want to do. So think about that. So when we talk about sovereignty, we need to recognize we're not just meaning God's providence, that he is in control of everything, that everything is caused by God. That is true. All the friends affirm it. Job affirms it, right? That, that's not in question. The thing we need to remind ourselves is God does what he does because he is free to do as he pleases. That, that is more difficult for us because that means, and this is what Job is trying to get at in this section, you're misidentifying retribution because God doesn't just act the way that you think he should act. He acts in ways that's up to him. He is sovereign because he's free. And if he decides, I'm going to let this wicked man, right, become the emperor of the world for a period of time so that he could build roads, so that he could establish things that will allow the gospel in another generation to flourish, and to, then so be it. God can do as he pleases. If God determines, I'm going to allow this young man, right, to be sold into slavery and to live as a slave, to be accused of things he hasn't done, to go to jail, to, think, to know that his family thinks that he is gone and dead, right, to live a completely different life apart from them, and then to re, uh, reunite them in a way that rescues that nation, then so be it. God is free to do as he pleases. He doesn't have to go in a straight line. His providence, yes. His sovereignty, we go, what? Right? 
because he might go about things in a roundabout way. Think about all the amazing, from our, from our perspective, from our human perspective, coincidences that were necessary for you to have come to faith in Christ. I think about it for myself. You know, my brother and I, George, we've talked about that. Our family, my dad, had a pretty good job when we were babies in, in South Korea. If he stayed there, he would have probably been wealthy. He, he would have probably been underhanded. You know, my dad was a believer when he went to be with the Lord. But in, in the earlier years, I trust that he would have probably been scandalized at one point. But me and G would have probably been very wealthy anyway, right? We, you know, we had our money. Um, we would have enjoyed the, the, the things of this world probably, um, a lot more than we did because we kind of grew up poor. But will we have heard the gospel or would the gospel message have penetrated our souls? Quite possibly not. We, we moved to the United States. My, my parents lived in abject poverty for a period of time. They went through bankruptcy at another period of time. We went through a lot of difficulties. That those things were instrumental in faith building and drawing us to the Lord. And you have other stories, right? Whether it was sin or someone sinning against you, whether it was uncontrollable anger or, or you liked that, that, that girl that attended church, or right? Like how many series of things that we cannot, we cannot explain in and of ourselves did God providentially and in his freedom sovereignly direct your path so that he could draw you to himself that's job's argument and his argument is your system is broken because you think god is just one or two left or right all right black or white and he's saying god is he never sins he never fails he's perfectly wise providentially in control of everything but his sovereignty means that he goes and takes you through paths that are not necessarily the way you would have done it and your life is rarely a straight line do you understand that so he's saying you're misidentifying this this system of retribution that's not how god's sovereignty works ask the animals they kind of do random stuff right look at history and see that the wicked get away with their sin for a while this is all under the sun, of course. But the whole idea is that your system doesn't explain my suffering. And third, they misunderstand sovereignty. I, I guess I was supposed to explain all that providence and sovereignty under this. I apologize, but you just kind of just carry that over. Carry that over, right? This, their system misunderstands God's sovereignty. With God, our wisdom and might he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. You see, all the things that God is sovereignly in control of, right? He's in control of, 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 of everything with wisdom, counsel, might, and power. And if he shuts a man in or he tears a thing down, no one can say, no, you can't do that. He always knows what he is doing, but what he is doing is not always knowable to us. Every person in this argument understands that God is in control, that he can send too little water, that's called a drought, welcome to L.A., or he can send too much water, that's called a flood right? God is literally in control and his wisdom guides him in ways that we may not understand. Verse 16, 
and 17. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He's saying that even rulers and people that we go to for counsel, they don't have the wisdom to explain how and why God does the things that he does. And then look at verse 17 through 19. He confounds the most skillful leaders among us. He leads counselors away stripped. It means that they're so embarrassed, it's like they walk away naked. The judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings, meaning that kings have all this power, they lose it all. And instead, he's wearing a waist cloth, like he's a servant, right, taking care of tables. He leads priests away stripped. Again, again, it's dishonored, right? Um, he overthrows the mighty. He does all of these things because that's what his sovereignty means. So there are not any deceivers or tricksters that get away with anything. God knows their ways. But it's not to say that God is tameable, explainable, and simplified to fit in our pockets. His sovereignty is over all. And it extends even to people groups. Verse 20, 20, he deprives of speech those who are trusted, takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deep out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like drunken men. See, whether it's individuals or it's entire people groups or it's nations, God deals with them as he pleases when he pleases. It is perfectly appropriate for you to pray for this nation, pray for its leaders. In fact, I think think scripture actually calls upon us to do that regularly and faithfully. But God does not have to respond to your prayers in a way that's exactly in a straight line with what you hope for. He has used wicked people and wicked nations to accomplish his greater good. That may seem weird to you, but the whole point is he's not so easily um, explainable as you must have done something bad. That's why he made you blind. All right. You must have been hiding some secret sin. That's why you've been diagnosed with cancer. That's not the way our God operates. Even those that are honoring to the Lord and love him with all their hearts might find themselves blind with cancer, struggling to to get a job, etc. That his ways are not our ways. And that's the point. There's other passages that you can look at. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar and his his, um, attribution to God that, that whereas Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the greatest on earth as a ruler, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted like nothing. You add them all up, all the rulers, all its inhabitants, and there are nothing in the eyes of God. He does according to his will. See, sovereign freedom among the hosts of heaven, among the angelic beings, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does as he pleased. That's his sovereign will. And he accomplishes all that he accomplishes because This is to his greater glory. That means that God is sovereign and free to do as he pleases in your life. That that tells us that there is good that he pours into your life. But also tells us that sometimes there's tragedy and bad 
that he pours into your life. And with all the challenges, the humiliations, the trials, and the pains, he uses those to shape us to greater dependence upon him and to greater light towards his glory. And I'm not simplifying that. That is, that is not an easy task. And whatever you're going through, I'm not going to pretend that, don't worry, it's for God's glory, so just you know, suck it up. You know, be a good soldier. Not at all. Look at what Job's life is like. Can you imagine that pep talk? Hey, Job, you got to see the world a little bit more half full. You know, you still breathe regularly, right? What are you going to say to Job? And yet he is God's creation. Job knows that. He is someone that God loves. He's, he's convinced of that, even though this is happening. That's why he just needs to understand why is this happening. Your life is not in the hands of chance or fate or some coincidence. That's a tremendous comfort to me. That even when the worst things are happening, this isn't accidental. This wasn't preventable. This is God's decreed providence in your life because His sovereignty doesn't act like the way that you want Him to act all the time. I'd rather that than to believe that God is not sovereign and in perfect control, that He's just doing the best that He can, and there might be a time He loses you, that we slip through His fingers, and that He loses our salvation, right? Our God is sovereign. His providence is absolute. And even if we can't understand it, Job is saying, don't simplify him. Right? Don't domesticate our God. Their self-righteous system, it just doesn't work. It misjudges the blameless, misidentifies retribution on those that may not be receiving retribution. It misunderstands God's freedom in his sovereignty. Your system is broken, right? And here's the second part. Your system is dangerous. It's dangerous. So he has an assessment in point one. Point two, this is, this is Job's warning. Because who God is, and because God cannot be put in a box that way, he doesn't fit a system very easily that way. He says, your system is very dangerous. Because God is very dangerous. There's that, that quote that I've read at, at least a couple times from this pulpit from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I like. Right? Remember the kids, they have found the wardrobe. Right? They, have, they have heard about, or I don't know at that point if they have encountered the witch. But then they run into Mr. and Mrs. Veer, and then they start hearing about this Aslan, this great ruler, and one of the kids asked them, well, is Aslan a man? And then the beavers say, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. And this is Susan's response. Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver's response, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And you see, what C.S. Lewis is trying to do there is trying to say exactly what we're trying to say, what Job is trying to say. That he is good, that's what we depend on. But he is king, meaning he is absolutely sovereign and free to do. It is his right to do as he pleases. Which means that he is not safe. 
He does not act in ways that fit what I want. We can pray for security. We can pray for a decent retirement. We can pray that we would have good health, etc. It's not wicked to pray for those things, but God is free to say no to any and all of those because he is the king. And what do we depend on? That he is not just sovereign, but the second pillar. He is good. He's not just the king. He is a good king. That doesn't mean he's safe. And that's his point. God, Job's point, is that God is not safe. In chapter 13, starting verse 1, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So he keeps repeating that it's not like you guys are superior. You have greater knowledge. We agree about these things. Verse 3, But I would speak to the Almighty. He's telling them why he feels like he needs to talk to God. I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. He says a lot of stuff there that, that I think is, is, um, is, uh, is straight to the point and harsh, but accurate. He says, I, I want to argue before the Lord, right? Because he is good. I want to know what's going on. But for you, you're whitewashing things with lies. You're just splattering lies. You're, you're worthless physicians. You're help to nobody. Oh, that you would just shut up. That would be wisdom for you, right? That's Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Sometimes it's better for us to just shut our mouths, right? Because they have said stuff that is not wise and is not safe because they are speaking of God in such a way that misrepresents him. Look at verses 6 through 12. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? See, this is Job saying, you are speaking falsely about God. You're saying he's condemning me for sins that I haven't committed. So it's not just me that you're condemning. You are then committing God to a kind of righteousness that fits your self-righteousness. So you're speaking falsely on behalf of him. You're speaking deceitly, deceitfully for him. You need to be very careful in what you are about to say. Right? Will you show partiality towards him? Are you trying to help God? You're trying to lean in on defending God and his justice and declaring to me that this is God's retribution on you because this is how God should act on someone like you, a sinner? Are you pleading God's case on his behalf? He says, listen, if you are speaking falsely of what God is doing, that is a dangerous place to be. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, listen, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And then in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and in fact, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. That's what Job is claiming about them. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, we're still in our sins. He said it's a dangerous thing to misrepresent God. And Job is saying, you are misrepresenting God. You think you're misrepresenting me, right? You're judging me. But in a sense, you are misrepresenting God himself because God knows. Verse 9. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. 
Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. His point is, God actually knows your heart. He knows why you're judging me because you, you think that you can rescue me or because you think that you have something that I need or you can help me, right? You're better than me. You have stepped into the judgment seat of God. The problem is God knows all of that. He knows your false motives. He knows your self-righteousness. And if you are mistaken, God knows that you are against him and misrepresenting him and he will rebuke you and it turns out in Job 42 8 when we get towards the end he certainly does he says of Job's friends you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has he literally God affirms exactly what Job has been saying that God knows what you are saying and that if you are wrong and your system is wrong then you are misrepresenting me but you are also misrepresenting God and so God says exactly what Job has been saying It's not an issue of intellect or theology, of knowing spiritual truth. These friends knew truth just as well as Job did. They misrepresented God's character and Job's integrity. Their theological system had no place for innocent suffering. Right? You can't suffer and still be right with the Lord. Or can you? Because Jesus Christ actually was. And the thing that Job leaves them with by way of warning in verse 11 is, if you do this to the Lord, will not his majesty terrify you? It's another way of saying, will not his glory come upon you and you feel his terror or the dread of him fall upon you? You don't get to just throw out maxims and defenses and offenses and proclaim all these things on his behalf without God turning the tables on you, right? God is not safe, but God is good. Verses 13 to 19. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Job is saying, as dangerous as God is, I could take my appeal before him because I know that he is still good. He's telling his friends, be quiet and just listen. I'm about to put my flesh in my teeth. It's a way of saying, right, I'm going to put my life in my hand. I'm going to put everything on the line because God is dangerous. We don't just approach and demand of him an audience. Nevertheless, I feel that I should go and approach God and I'm willing to bet my life on it that I am in the right, that I am not being judged for something wicked that I have done, but that God has ordained this to my life for some purpose and I just want to know why and I want to know clearly that I haven't done anything wrong. That's why he says in verse 15, though he slay me, this is how dangerous God is, right? This is who God is and his sovereignty means he's free. He can give me cancer and he can take my life. That's up to him. And though he slay me, he is still good so I will hope in him. 
I will argue my case that I think I'm innocent. But it's up to the Lord. Verse 16, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. He is good. And the godless don't get to stand before him. But keep listening, he says, my friends. Let my declaration be in your ears, verse 17. He says, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. I know that I am right. And I know that God knows that I am right. And there will be none that can contend with me. And if I am wrong, if I'm mistaken from the get-go, second part of verse 19, then I, should be, I will be silent and I will die. His point is, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll put my life on the line and I will put my life on the line to bet that I am in the right, that God has some other purposes in this. And that is his whole point. The system of his friends tells him that he must be a secret sinner. That's why he's suffering. Job knows this isn't true. The evidence before him tells us all that God is dangerous, he's random, he's somewhat unpredictable. And his faith tells him, though, that God is is as sovereign and free to do as he pleases. He is still righteous and good. And because he is good, Job says, I need to appeal to him. I can't appeal to you guys. You guys don't get it. But perhaps I could appeal to him. See, his response to his friends is that your system, right, your system is broken. It, It doesn't account for everything that actually is in this world. And your system is dangerous. It's dangerous to you and it's dangerous, right, to any of those that would shape and warp God as a vessel of their own self-righteousness. But let me, I don't want to end you with just how wrong their self-righteous system is, right? I want to give you a glimmer of where Job is going to go in terms of his hope. You know, Job has been saying that he wishes he could just die. Do you remember that in his response to his friends? He's saying, this is so hard. He wishes he was never born. And then later he says, dude, I wish God would just take my life, right? And, and, and just, just let it be done. But look, cast your eyes down to ver- chapter 14, verses 13 to 17. And I'll read this to you and say just a couple words and that'll be it. He says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. So he's returning to the idea that God could cast him into the, the netherworld or to the grave might be the best way for us to say that. That he would just throw him into the realm of the dead. That God would take his life. That you would conceal me until your wrath has passed. That you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would, long for the, uh, you would long for the work of your hands. And then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. The hope that Job and his faith seems to cling to is this notion that if he died, maybe God could hide me in death for a while until his wrath is passed, until all of his sins are gone. And then he could pull me up and I would be, and he uses the term renewed, right? I could be given life again. And then my transgression would be sealed up in a bag, covered over, and would cast away. And I would have new life in him. Does Job have a concept of the death of Christ and the resurrection? No, not yet, right? 
but his faith leads him to believe that death is not all there is because his life is not all there is. There must be a hope for something more. And that's like Job keeps drawing us to that same glimpse of gospel hope. There must be something more. You know that there must be something more, right? If you're suffering, then you believe and you hope that there must be something more. If things are going real well for you, then you still need to know that there must be something more because there is. And if it's at all possible, right, that something as outrageous as death could bring life, or let me put it another, another way. If comfort can come out of suffering, in Job's case, if joy can come out of pain, if hope can come out of a moment of despair, it is only because life can come from death. It is only because Jesus lived a life, he died an innocent death, and then he was raised from the dead as validation, Right? that he has overcome sin and death and that we might have life in him. You see how Job speaks of the glimmer of the gospel and Jesus fulfills it. See, this is why Job is precious for our souls, for the self-righteousness in us, that we start putting that junk away, right? For, for the, the pain in us, that we would embrace that and know, is this from God? Yes. And you'd rather it be from God than some random act of unkindness that happens somewhere in the universe. And yes, it is painful, but God is good and he is capable and powerful and strong enough to hear your lament and pain. And that that's not all there is. That even if death should take you, that God can renew that life because in Christ, you can be buried and in Christ, you can be raised from the dead and you can find the hope of the gospel because of who God is and what he has done in the person of Christ. Turn to our Lord for forgiveness of sins and for life and hope. In all of your circumstances, his hope is better. Let's close in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word and for the counsel of Job for the wisdom that he gives us in the midst of his pain. Lord, we find it difficult to fully embrace and understand everything that he experiences. But we hope that it would be a glimmer of hope of the gospel of resurrection, that we would think rightly about you, our God, and that it would cause us to delight more in what you have accomplished in Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that all eyes, especially those that recognize that in God's sovereignty, there are many pains and difficulties in this life, that we, would, that we would leverage those pains and moments to teach us to depend upon you and to hope in something that's greater than this life. We praise you for your son and for the salvation that he gives us. In Jesus' name, amen.